I want to begin with a bear and a gorilla. Of course, I'm speaking about Bear Grylls. Uh, this is uh, a devotional uh, written by Bear Grylls. It's soul fuel for young explorers. And uh, I was given this by a friend, and I've been reading it with my children uh, over the last few weeks. I'm just going to confess to you, I've also been reading it a little bit on my own. So I encourage it for children or for adults. And this is what I read just the other day. Coco was 46 when she died in her sleep. It was not a dramatic death, but it was reported around the world. You see, Coco was a gorilla, and a very unusual one at that. When Penny Patterson, a PhD student, told her tutor that she wanted to see whether gorillas could learn sign language, she was told that it was unlikely. She decided to try it anyway. Even though Coco started slowly, learning just three words in four years, she finally got going. A bit like homeschool there, isn't it? Eventually, she learned more than 1,000 words of sign language and could understand almost 2,000 spoken words. She combined words when she needed to, calling a ring a finger bracelet. Isn't that great? A nectarine yogurt, orange flower sauce. But the best signing she ever did was when a journalist asked her for the meaning of life. People be polite, she signed. People have goodness. People have goodness. We've been, in the last few weeks, speaking about this idea of a church called Tov, the idea that God creates a world for goodness, and he installs humankind as the sort of pinnacle of his creation with the purpose of showing his goodness to the whole of creation. People have goodness, and, and last week we said that Jesus is the epitome, the fullness, the fulfillment of that vision. Not just a man made in the image of God, but the very image of God. And so when we seek as God's church to become people of Tov, people of goodness, people who manifest this goodness, we need to look at Jesus. A gorilla gets it. The question for the church, I think, the question for us is, do we get it? And this week, we're actually going to begin to unpack what Tove looks like in practice as we look really at stories about Jesus. And what's interesting to me, particularly in John's Gospel, as we go through John's Gospel piece by piece, is that Jesus' first activity in the Gospel is to call disciples. He calls these five followers from Galilee to follow him and to sort of... He's about to send them out. He's about to do the stuff to be his representatives. And so we'd expect that the next activity he has for them would be key in forming them. Maybe he's going to take them away to the wilderness. You know, for a rigorous spiritual retreat, some press-ups and 24-7 prayer gatherings. You know, that kind of thing. Really brutal Christian stuff. Or maybe he's going to take them to the classroom, teach them some of his thoughts on the Jewish law or whatever else. But no, in fact, Jesus doesn't do either of those things. What Jesus does first and foremost with these disciples is to take them to a wedding. A wedding! Do you remember those? You remember gathering in large numbers of people and celebrating. You remember waking up on the morning and thinking, where are my smart shoes? And why, have they, why are they covered in mud? Uh, polishing them and finding the tie that you, know, you last wore a year previously and untying it. 
and uh, trying to put it on and getting your best clothes out and all that stuff. And do you remember showing up and just being a, a little bit worried you weren't going to be able to find a parking space because you were a little bit late for the celebration, but you arrive and you park and you wander into the church and you celebrate with friends, this joining together, this celebration, and you go to another place and you dance and you hear speeches and you walk out to go to the toilet when the speeches get really awkward. Is that just me that does that or is others as well? And, and, you know, you celebrate together. You dance and you eat food and you drink drink and it's amazing. And it, it's the best food you've ever tasted. It's the best wine you've ever tasted because somebody else paid for it. That's what weddings are all about. That's what Jesus begins teaching his disciples in. Why does he do it? The word wedding in Aramaic, it comes from the same root as the word to drink. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, you want to understand my kingdom, you've, you've really got to taste it. You've really got to taste it. You've got to taste and see what it feels like. This, Jesus is saying, is what heaven tastes like. It's like a wedding. It's a banquet. It's a feast. It's a celebration. Jesus wants to form his disciples at a feast. <laughs> Jesus wants to form his disciples at a feast. And that's why at the end of the section in verse 11, John says, this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. In other words, he's saying, this is a sign. It's an indication that we're on the way somewhere where we're about to arrive. You need to look at this sign to understand the destination. The sign points to reality that's ahead. So what's the significance of this particular sign, this particular wedding? Well, a wedding, right? A celebration, a feast. That would have, that would have sort of raised thoughts and imagination around God's deliverance, God's rescue. Because the whole point of God rescuing Israel, the people to whom Jesus comes first and foremost, in the first place was to enable them to celebrate. To worship. The whole point was worship. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. It was about celebration. God's deliverance was past, present, and future. And it was all about celebration. It also anticipates a heavenly banquet. A moment that will come when God and his people will celebrate together. But in the middle of this particular wedding, there's a crisis. Wine runs out. Now, in this culture, I mean, to be honest, in any culture, today, if you were at a wedding and the booze ran out, there may well be uproar. But particularly in this culture where hospitality was a fundamental feature of life, if the wine ran out, there would be shameful. It might even bring shame on the marriage itself. So the master of the banquet has a real issue and it begins to maybe feed the news out to significant people. The wedding, the party's in danger of losing momentum entirely. This is the situation that Israel had found herself in. Called to a celebration, called to a feast, called to God's joyous banquet. But she'd lost her way. The wine had run out, the crisis had come. She'd become unfruitful. And the prophets speak into this in the Old Testament. I could give you Jeremiah 8. He says, I'll take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine. There'll be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken from them. Picture of unfruitfulness, of wine running out. 
Isaiah 5, a 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. That's not enough from a 10-acre vineyard, folks. Or Joel 1, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Do you see these pictures of unfruitfulness? There was meant to be celebration and in fact there's mourning. The feast itself is under threat. So the question at the heart of this story in John 2 is, where will abundance be found? How are we going to get this party started again? Perhaps the answer is human effort, striving. And maybe we understand Mary's solution somewhere along those lines. She comes to Jesus, maybe just trying to leverage her maternal authority to get him to bring his friends in. He knows people around the place. And maybe I'm reading into it, but that's what I see happening. Interestingly, Jesus refuses her request on the terms in which she presents it. Yeah, eventually he does what she asks, but not on the terms that she offers. You notice Jesus doesn't refer to her as mother, but woman. That sounds sort of rude in our culture, but it, that word wouldn't be at all rude. But he's simply saying, look, if you come to me, you can't come with that authority. And so the way is not human effort. That's not how we're going to restart the party. Nor is it the Jewish law. This is a bit technical, I know, but stick with me. The law itself, I think there's a a hint here at least that the law itself won't get us back into the party mood. Here we have these six stone jars used for purification. These were ceremonial jars. These were essential for any wedding party. These were about access, about purity, access into God's presence. And, And Jesus, you know what he does? He fills them up. With water, 120 gallons worth. Would have taken ages. But he fills them up. And one scholar says that what he's doing is to represent the the fact that these jars and what they represent have come to their point of fullness. Their time is complete. They themselves are not enough. Their use has to be transformed. Abundance, Jesus is saying, is not going to come through obedience to to the law. Good though it was. We have to have another way to join in God's celebration, to come in to God's party, to experience His grace and His goodness. How are we going to come in? Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then He told them, now draw some out. Take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And what do we see coming from those simple words? What comes is abundance. What comes is a celebration. What comes is a a restoration of all that God intended, all that the master of the banquet desired. And it came not through effort, not through Torah obedience, law obedience. It came through proximity and obedience to Jesus. Abundance always comes from obedience to Jesus. Walking with him. Doing what he says. It's that simple. Because Jesus is not just the wine. As we find out later in John chapter 15, he is the vine.
He's the source of all God's goodness. He is the life of God. He is the goodness of God. He's the power of God, the mercy of God, the full revelation of God. All in this man who turns water into wine, not just as a party trick, not even as a party trick, but as a sign that God has wine for us to drink. That there is a life that only God can live, which is rich and abundant and holy and good. And it's received simply by receiving it. It is never earned. It can only be enjoyed. Jesus provides wine in manifold excess. Great excess, much more than is needed. This party is coming to a conclusion, folks. It's already been going on days. And yet Jesus creates 120 gallons worth of wine. Wine in excess, wine of great quality, but also wine, wine of great quantity, but also wine of great quality. As we read, the wine is better than the wine that had been tasted to this point. This is our Tove God in action. The extravagant generosity of God, the abundance of God. He came to get the party started and to invite us into it with him. Heaven in the here and now. And because this is what we see in Christ, we as his disciples are called to that banquet, called to share in that banquet, and called to join with others in it. To offer it to the world, to show it, to be people of celebration, people of joy, people of generosity. What might this look like? Well, I came across a story I came across this in September. I, I, you don't know how much I've wanted to inflict this story upon you. And I've waited and it's taken all of my discipline. I've written sermons just, just to get this story out there since, but I've had to wait. It's a story about a man called Chuck Feeney. We have his picture. but In truth, probably most of you have never heard of him. If you've heard of him, you've probably never seen a picture of him. This man doesn't own a house. He rents a small apartment in San Francisco. He owns only one pair of shoes. He wears a $10 watch. He has no car. He carries his papers around in a plastic bag. He used to fly a lot. And he would fly an economy even when his family were on the plane and they were up in business class. He's frugal. Maybe, like me, he originates from Yorkshire, we can't tell. No, he doesn't, because he's an Irish-American. And he is, in fact, an Irish-American billionaire. But he came up with an idea that he called giving while living. And he resolved, while he was alive, he wanted to give away his $8 billion fortune before he died. In other words, he wanted to spend himself broke. And so he did. He began to give. He began to give in secret. In fact, he gave in secret for many, many years. He, he was only discovered because a business partner took him to court. And his scandalous and abundant generosity became apparent. He's given to health care in Vietnam so that the country could be rebuilt after the war. He's given to the Irish peace process. He's given to education. He's given $3.7 billion to education. Almost a billion to his... Uh, his former university, Cornell. In fact, and I love this, 
He gave so much money in secret that when the chairman of the board received the money, he had to persuade the other board members that this wasn't mafia money. This is the Tove life, isn't it? This is extravagant and extraordinary, abundant generosity. This is what Tove looks like. This is the life of abundant wine when so many of us are used to drinking water. And the amazing thing about Chuck Feeney, the reason I love him and I love his story, is he made a deliberate plan to spend himself broke while he was still alive. He reserved nothing. He wanted simply to give everything. And in this way, his vision is like the vision of Jesus. Because Jesus, the the true master of the banquet, he chose to give himself up entirely for our sake. John, at the beginning of the story, verse 1 of chapter 2, says, On the third day, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. This is a, an indication that what we're being pointed towards is the cross and the resurrection. That really what's happening is a, the sign here that's being showed is the sign of Jesus' own life, of his life of abundant grace and generosity. He's giving himself entirely as he did on the cross. What else is his wine symbolic of? Except his blood shed for you and for me for the forgiveness of sins that we might be joined into the feast that God has right now for us. What else is this story of a wedding but a picture of the final moment where heaven and earth are joined together and the church, God's people, are joined forever with Jesus the the bridegroom. And so it's here that we see that God's way to restore abundance to his people and in fact to his whole creation is to give himself abundantly for his people. And so we, the church, Jesus' people, are called to live lives of extravagant, extraordinary generosity. Dangerous, sacrificial generosity. Without counting the cost. To spend ourselves broke on behalf of each other, on behalf of our neighbor, on behalf of our enemy. How do we do it? Well, let me just suggest quickly three ways. We do it with our time. Our time is so rigorously planned. Particularly those of us who have busy jobs or busy family lives. We we schedule everything. Busy Netflix schedules. We schedule every moment and we have so little margin. I want to encourage you to begin to create margin, to waste time on God. If you don't yet waste time in your day, burn time on God in worship, in prayer. I encourage you to do so. You might want to begin by practicing a pattern of prayer. We have one here. We pray in the morning, a psalm. Some of us pray more, but at least we pray a psalm. Uh, midday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. In the evening, we record and redis- we go through our day. It's called the examine. In God's presence, we're trying to simply pattern our lives around God. We want to give Him first and foremost our time. The first of our day, the best of our day, the middle and the last of our day. Practice the art of wasting time on God. But create space in your schedule for other people. To walk your neighborhood, to pound the pavement, to pray. With your earphones out so you can meet anybody who God puts in your way. Just create margin in your life. That's one way to be generous. What about with your talent? 
There are so many gifts on display in the church, but our job here is to put our gifts into the service of others. We can do that in so many ways in this community, but we're called to do that here and also beyond here. You do that through your work every day, building family, building institutions in this city, but we can do that in so many different ways. Putting our talents to work outside of our own agenda in ways that don't instantly benefit us. Finally, we can do that with our treasure. I want to speak to you. I want to urge you to live as simple a life as you can possibly do. Have as little material stuff as you can get by with. And give as generously as you possibly can. One practice, Christian practice, from the beginning of the life of the church and way before through Jewish life has been to practice giving a tithe, the first, the best, the tenth to God. This is a fundamental spiritual and Christian discipline. I'm not saying anything controversial when I say that. And yet so few of us are aware of that. Many of people do that in this church. And if you're not yet in Involved in that practice, I want to encourage you to step in. It is the most freeing thing to do that. I encourage you to begin to give in that way. If you're already doing that, consider whether the Spirit of God is whispering to you, urging you to give beyond that. And beyond that simple practice, all of us have the grace to regularly practice secret generosity. As Chuck Feeney did, as Jesus did, as disciples have ever since. Because... There is a celebration into which you and I are invited. And we can each afford to be more generous than we ever dared imagine because of God's generosity to us in Jesus. We who are invited to taste the wine of this Tove kingdom are also invited to share it indiscriminately, abundantly, scandalously to those around us. All we need to do is stay close to Jesus to do what he asks. Let's pray.